invite you to open with me now in God's Word uh, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, uh, and our text is verses 8 through 14. <coughs> Revelation chapter 5 and verses uh, 8 through uh, 14. Last week we considered the first part of this chapter. Uh, the question was raised at the beginning of uh, the chapter, who is worthy to open the scroll, that is, the scroll that was written both within and on the back, that was in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, God himself, his scroll, who is worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals, that is, Through whom or how are God's providential purposes for this world going to be fulfilled? That question, who indeed is worthy, is such an important question. And what we found in uh, last week or was this, that one of the elders then said, Behold, it is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, who has conquered, and he can open the scroll and can break its seals. And so this lion of the tribe of Judah then appears as a lamb. A lamb, a sacrificial lamb. One with seven horns and seven eyes. And this one went and took the scroll from the one who was seated on the throne. The lamb indeed is worthy. And now in our text this week, beginning at verse 8, we're going to see the immediate response to the lamb of God taking this scroll, to this lamb being found worthy. And we will see that it is a response of glorious worship. So let's now pick up the reading, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. And when he, that is this lamb, had taken the scroll, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying uh, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord our God, what a scene of heavenly worship this is. We pray, O Lord, that we would gain a fresh apprehension of the way that our Lord Jesus Christ even now is worshipped and will be worshipped to eternity. Lord, might we join our voices with those of the elders and living creatures and myriads of angels in praise and worship of the Lamb of God who died to take away our sin. Oh, bless your word. 
to our souls now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, the first reference uh, to Christian believers that we have in any uh, non-Christian context, any secular context, is in a letter that was written um, from the governor Pliny to the emperor Trajan uh, in the year A.D. 112, about 20 years or so after the book of Revelation was written. Uh, Pliny was the governor of Bithynia and Pontus in the region of Anatolia on the coast of the Black Sea. And he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan asking advice of the emperor how to deal with the Christians who were in their region. Uh, Pliny uh, speaks to the emperor of uh, the ways that he had been trying them and even executing some of uh, those uh, Christian uh, believers. He says that he would bring in an accused Christian. If they confess that they are a Christian, he would interrogate them twice more for a total of three times. And he would uh, threaten them with death if they continued to confirm their beliefs. Uh, if they did not recant, then he would order them to be executed. Or if Roman citizens, he would order them to be taken uh, to Rome. Now, Pliny was a little bit unsure of exactly what offenses they were committing by being Christians, but nonetheless, he was sure that this was the right response to those who would hold with such inflexible obstinacy and stubbornness to their beliefs. Uh, these Christians, he were accusing them of being hostile to the government and openly defying a magistrate who had ordered them to abandon this unwanted cult. Well, then in the letter, Pliny goes on to describe the ways that the Christians were acting in their midst. And there were three primary things that Pliny accused them of. And the first was this. He said that these Christians meet on a certain day before dawn where they gather and sing hymns to Christ as to a God. And then secondly, that they bind themselves by oath not to commit crimes, but rather to, to not commit crimes. <laughs> uh, they pledge not to commit crimes such as fraud, theft, adultery, and things like that. And then subsequently, after doing these things, they share a meal that Pliny describes that of ordinary and innocent food. And that was what these Christians had done, and thus were deserving of death. But what incredible testimony to these early believers. Here's some 20 years after the book of Revelation was written. What does this governor say about them? These are the Christians who gather on the first day of the week, every time they gather before dawn in order because, again, of the, the public spectacle of it all, but they gather before dawn to sing hymns to Christ as God. They then commit themselves to follow the Lord, and they share a meal, the Lord's Supper, uh, together. What an incredible testimony uh, this is. And it's a testimony that I desire that Christians today might continue to follow, to follow in their steps and I think it is especially a striking thing as we consider this passage. Why was it that these early Christians 
sang hymns to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, no doubt it was in part because of the revelation which John received here in Revelation chapter 5, where it is a picture of those Christians who have gone before and the angels who are in heaven who are doing the exact same things, worshiping and adoring the Lord Jesus Christ as God. And so let us follow the example, not only of those early 2nd century Christians, but follow the example which they themselves were following, the example of heavenly worship that we find in this chapter. And I want want to encourage us here to be worshipers of the Lamb, like we find here in Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at this passage under four different points, see different, four different things about the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've phrased it really as four different exhortations to us. The first thing I want to say is that we need to worship the Lamb and participate in something bigger than ourselves. Secondly, to worship the Lamb and give yourself entirely to the Lord. Third, worship the Lamb and be in awe of His redeeming work. And fourth, worship the Lamb and ascribe all glory to Him. So those four points out of this scene of heavenly worship that we find in Revelation chapter 5. Worship the Lamb and participate in something bigger than yourself. Secondly, give yourself entirely to the Lord. Third, be in awe of His redeeming work. And fourth, ascribe all glory to him. Well, the first exhortation is this, to worship the Lamb and participate in something bigger than yourself. You'll notice in our text that as soon as uh, this Lamb of God goes and receives the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, that as soon as he, reads, uh, as soon as he receives that scroll, what we have described for us in the rest of Revelation chapter 5 is, as it were, ever-widening circles of praise that are radiating now from the throne of God. Uh, The first circle of praise that we see is that of the 24 elders. Uh, They're described for us in verse 8. The 24 elders immediately falling down uh, before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they begin to sing a new song. Uh, You'll remember that as we considered two weeks ago, that these 24 elders represent the entire church of God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're represented symbolically here by these 24 elders. And you'll notice here that it is these elders who are closest to the throne worshiping the Lord. It is the church of Christ that gets the front row seat in the worship of Almighty God. But then the next circle of praise is that of the angels. They're described for us then in verse 11. Because then he says, he hears around the throne and the living creatures, who we said last time represent certain angelic beings, but here then we are described as well, uh, then on top of that, then the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands who join in this worship. How ready these angels are to join their voices 
to that of the redeemed church in the worship of God. We read elsewhere in the Bible that the angels rejoice every time a single sinner repents. And here we are told that there is a countless number of angels who are worshiping the Lord in heaven. You know, every week when we gather here, our deacons very helpfully take account of the number of people uh, that are worshiping. Uh, Well, I praise the Lord that he has gathered this number of people in West Springfield, but week by week, it is a number that the deacons are able to count. But someday, we are going to gather in a host of angels that are described as myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, the picture being it is a number far too great for any of us to be able to give count. And it is that kind of worship which is surrounding the throne, that kind of worship of the Lamb. But then we are moved beyond that to an even ever-widening circle of praise in verse 13 when it says then that I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Do you get the picture he's saying here? Look around all of vast creation and every part of it, every creature in this earth which God has made, this whole creation then entering into this uh, song of praise. What a glorious picture this is of heavenly worship, both the worship that is going on now in heaven and especially the worship that will one day be the Lord's in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, people love big events. I like big events. Right? Uh, perhaps it's a concert that you go to with just a sea of people, or a a, a college football game, 100,000 people packed into a stadium watching a game, cheering. Perhaps it's a, a kind of political demonstration or political march as you're gathering side by side with others of like mind, and it's a sea of people out there. And Uh, organizers of events like to advertise how big their event is going to be. They say, we want to make this event the biggest ever. Or they'll tell us, everybody is going to be there. You don't want to miss it. Well, dear friends, uh, it's the same, I think, in many ways in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, I think one of the most blessed times to worship is when you're worshiping with a crowded sanctuary of people and there's a chorus of praise, of singing, of, of, of praise to God, and it's so loud that you can't even hear your own voice as it joins uh, the chorus of others. What a foretaste of heaven it is. And it is a foretaste of heaven because of what we describe here, dear friends, that heavenly worship here is going to be, and it is even now, the biggest event ever. That no event in all creation is bigger than the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. It's the biggest thing that there ever is or ever will be. It's going to have a group of people that is bigger than you can imagine. Angels, myriads of angels that you cannot begin uh, to fathom. Do you want to experience that and be part of that? The biggest event ever. I do. I long for that. Do you anticipate that as well? Dear friends, this kind of heavenly worship that's described here isn't something only that we anticipate that will be ours someday, 
but it is something even that we can participate in now. I think the, the verse that we read just a moment ago in verse 8 is such a precious verse. Because there it says that these elders who are falling down before the Lamb, it says, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I wonder, do you ever feel like your prayers are reaching no higher than the ceiling? Or that the prayers of God's people seem unimportant? Well, here we are told, as Leon Morris says in his commentary, that in heaven the prayers of God's people are precious being brought into the very presence of God Himself, while the bowls in which they are offered are golden. Oh dear friends, even now in this place as we worship God, offering praise and offering prayers to Him, it is brought into the very throne room of heaven where there is glorious, glorious worship of the Lamb taking place. And so can I encourage you, worship the Lamb and be part of something so much bigger than yourself. But the second thing is this. Let me encourage you to worship the Lamb and to give yourself entirely to the Lord. Worship the Lamb and give yourself entirely to the Lord. I want you to notice in our passage the way that these worshipers are worshiping. We're told, first of all, of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and that they, verse 8, fell down before the Lamb. And then, in verse 11, uh, we are told there that around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, there suddenly is the voice of many angels. And these many angels said, verse 12, with a loud voice. And then in verse 14, after these songs are sung, we are told that the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you get the descriptions that are given here of the worship of the living God? I, I want to ask you, in this heavenly worship, are they simply going through the motions? Is this just the kind of ritual that they have to endure for an hour or two? Or is this something in which their whole being is engaged? Are they, do you think, mumbling their way through the songs? Are they looking at their phones wondering what time it is? Or maybe perhaps there's something more interesting going on somewhere else? No, they're giving their entire being to the worship of of God. Oh, friends, might it be so with us as well. That to worship God is to follow this example and to give of ourselves and all that we are uh, to to His worship. I think there can be a danger uh, in certain churches of what we might say a kind of excess of a personal display, an almost uh, kind of competition to see who can come up with the most extravagant outward display in the worship of, of God. And at times that can fall to being distracting to others. And similarly, we have to say we shouldn't judge a person's earnestness by uh, certain outward uh, uh, indicators, the loudness of their amends or how high their hands are lifted or the ways that they're Uh, flailing their body and so forth, things like that. But dear friends, let me just say, I don't think those are dangers necessarily that we're going to fall into as a church. 
Okay? If anything, what I want to say to you is what the danger that you and I need to be aware of is the danger of simply going through the motions and a kind of listlessness. And friends, if there are a few amens and, and nods and people uh, want to uh, move a little bit and things like that, those are good things. Those are appropriate things <laughs> in the worship of God. The main point is this though, dear friends, that when we worship God, might our whole being be involved. Let's be called to a kind of earnestness and a wholeheartedness that we see here in the book of Revelation. That when we listen to the Word of God being read, <coughs> that, there's a, that there's a kind of listening sort of on the edge of our seat with our mind and our heart and our wills and our emotions engaged as we hear God's Word. That when we sing, we ought to want to follow the example of the angels and to sing loudly, to not be afraid that the person next to us is going to hear us sing, but rather to be afraid that the person next to us isn't going to hear us sing and are not going to be encouraged by the praises that we bring as well. During our prayers as a congregation, you need to make every line your own. Do you know that when you're praying, you're not listening to somebody pray. That person is becoming the mouthpiece of the whole congregation. And that prayer is your prayer that you are lifting up to Almighty God. Friends, that is the kind of engagedness that we see among the elders and the living creatures and the angels in heaven. There's, there's a giving of themselves to the worship of God. Here am I, Lord. I want to worship You. And I ask you simply, do you worship the Lord in, in that same uh, way? Can I ask you who are young people, do you worship the Lord like this? One of the signs of, of spiritual maturity is that you begin to not really care about whether other people think that you're cool or not, but that you love the Lord Jesus and you want Him to know how much you love Him and how much you care for Him. That's a sign of maturity. Can, can you give yourself to the worship of God? Long to worship Him. Parents, can you... Call your children to do this and to encourage them in this. The giving of, our, of ourselves, all that we are, to the, uh, uh, to, to the worship of Almighty God. And friends, this is one of the things that tells the world around us that our Christianity is real. If somebody were to walk into this congregation, what would they, what would they see? Would they see, and I think this is this way in many congregations, worship that is so listless and void of people's attention and void of people's hearts that they say this is just some ritual that these people for some reason feel that they have to come and do on a weekly basis or would they come in and they would see hearts and minds engaged and voices lifted to such a degree that they would say these people really believe that they are worshiping the living God and I don't understand it maybe entirely, they would say, but these people clearly believe that they are worshiping God and they're engaged in it. That's the kind of engagedness that we ought to have because it's what, is, what we see in heaven as well. Let us, be, let us worship the Lamb and give ourselves to the Lord. Thirdly, what do we see about this heavenly worship? Thirdly, to worship the Lamb and to be in awe of His redeeming work. 
worship the Lamb, and be in awe of His redeeming work. In chapter 4, the vision of heavenly worship that we were given there, the focus was on the fact that the Lord created all things. Notice that in verse chapter 4 and verse 11. Uh, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Indeed, the creation of God gives us plenty of reason to worship God. But here in chapter 5, we see that the heavenly worship that centers primarily around the Lamb now, around the Lord Jesus Christ, praises God primarily here for His work of redemption. And you'll notice that the praise begins with these 24 elders, the the redeemed church of God, the church which stands in need of Christ's atoning blood. They especially praise Christ for His saving work. And so we see this in verses 9 and 10, a song here that is all about the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. And as it fills the content of their worship, so it should fill the content of our worship also. And notice four things that they especially point out about the redeeming work of Christ. First of all, it is the fact of Christ's redeeming work. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, and here it is, for you were slain. We worship you, Lord Jesus, for you were slain. You, who are the eternal Son, took to yourself a true humanity. You came and you suffered and you bled and you died an agonizing death on a Roman cross. Why? Well, it was for a sinner like me. God shows his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Dear friends, that fact that Christ gave himself on Calvary's cross ought to be the subject of unending praise for us. Oh, Jesus Christ, we praise you, O Lamb, because you were slain. But secondly, we should worship him uh, because of the efficacy of Christ's redeeming work. Not just the fact of it, but the efficacy of Christ's redeeming work. That word efficacy uh, simply refers to the power to accomplish what it set out to accomplish. And so what we're saying is that Christ's death powerfully accomplished all that the triune God had established for that death to accomplish. What did it do? It says, verse 9 again, And by your blood you ransomed people for God. Ransom here refers to deliverance at the payment of a price. And it's saying that Christ, by his death, paid a price. And the price was the price that met the demands of the justice of God for hell-deserving sinners. And Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God so that by his death, you and I are delivered and brought into this state of grace. By this death, 
he accomplished in full our deliverance. And you'll notice that Jesus here uh, didn't just make salvation possible for us, but rather his death was what we might call a definite atonement, a particular redemption what we describe sometimes as a limited atonement. That is, that He didn't die merely to make us savable. He didn't accomplish 99% of the work, saying that the last 1% is now up to us, but rather, He ransomed people for God. He did it all. Our salvation was entirely accomplished by what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And because it was entirely accomplished by Him, we want to praise Him. So we praise Him for the fact of His redeeming work, the efficacy of His redeeming work. Thirdly, we praise Him for the scope of His redeeming work. He ransomed people for God from where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see the piling up here of expressions that show that the redeemed people of God come from no single nation or race or class of people. It's a, it's a phrase that we're going to return to time and again in Revelation. Chapter 7 and verse 9. Chapter 11 and verse 9. Chapter 13 and verse 7. Chapter 14 and verse 6. And so friends, we're going to return to this theme time and again. And we're going to spend more time on it as we get uh, into uh, especially probably chapter 7 of the book of Revelation But let me just say right now that Revelation teaches us that part of the beauty of Christ's redeeming work is that He has ransomed a church that is wonderfully diverse. That Christ died for a people who are taken out of every nation and class. And friends, that's why we should take the Gospel everywhere. That's what impels missions This is why we should never give up on any group of people and say that they're hopeless or they're beyond the reach of the Gospel. Because the promise is is that Jesus Christ died for a people that are from every nation of this world. From every tribe. And this is why also then that the church must always be a place for everyone. From every culture, every language, every group of people who call on the name of Jesus Christ. No single culture ought ever to be privileged within the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, there's so much more that we can say about this. But isn't that some of the beauty of Jesus' work? That it extends across the, the globe. A wonderful diversity of people who are brought into His kingdom. The scope of Christ's redeeming work. The fourth reason for praise is the consequence of Christ's redeeming work. The consequence of Christ's redeeming work. What has Christ done? He has made these redeemed people a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Dear friends, what Christ has done by His redeeming work has brought us from the lowest place as hell-deserving sinners And He has lifted us up to the very highest place. He has made us a kingdom. Which means that He has included us within His kingdom which will never ever pass away. With Jesus Christ as King. And He has made us priests. What does a priest do? A priest worships. 
And so he's saying that you and I as redeemed sinners don't need someone to be a priest on our behalf, but rather having the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, each one of us are made worshipers of Almighty God. You who once were a rebel against Almighty God, selfish in all of your concerns, have now been brought into the throne room to worship Him forever and ever. You are kingdom and priests and you shall reign on the earth. What does this mean? Well, I don't believe this is simply talking about some future time period, or especially a future millennium, but rather it's speaking of a reality even now that Christians reign. You say, well, it doesn't look like it's happening. Well, it doesn't say it's a political reign that Christians have, but rather you and I are emissaries of the King we call people to faith in Jesus Christ. By our lives, we demonstrate the character of this kingdom. And though Christians are often despised and looked down upon in our world, friends, you and I are still going to be around in this kingdom when others are suffering everlasting punishment in hell. Dear friends, you and I are even now reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall forever and ever. Friends, this is the high privilege that we have been given. Do you see, where does their worship center upon? It centers upon the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And I simply ask you, if you have become weary of worship, could it be that you have become weary of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and your greatest need is to gain a fresh vision of all that Jesus Christ has done for your soul. To be convicted afresh of just what a sinner you are and how hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus. To look into, again, the wonders of His work and of His love, of His death on the cross, and to consider again all that He has done in making you a dear child of of God. Oh, friends, this redeeming work of Jesus is going to be the saints' eternal theme, should it not be our theme also. You know, when we come to this place week after week and we sing about and talk about the same things Jesus' love, his death on the cross, our need as sinners, friends, what we are doing is merely mirroring the worship of heaven where those will be the themes forever and ever. It is what Jesus has done. And that is what makes Him worthy. Oh, glorious work that it is. Might His redeeming work forever be the theme of our worship. Might it never grow old for us. So worship the Lamb and be in awe of His redeeming work. Fourthly, now finally, about our worship of the Lamb, might, might, might I say to you, worship the Lamb and ascribe all glory to Him. Worship the Lamb and ascribe all glory to Him. You know, there are many ways in Scripture of uh, showing uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus made statements which uh, show forth His deity. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus performed miracles that showed His deity. He made uh, the lame to walk. He caused the blind to see. He raised the dead to life. Uh, Jesus performed a salvation that shows His deity. Who else but God can redeem lost sinners? 
But I think one of the greatest evidences for the deity of Christ is found right here in the book of Revelation. That He is one who receives the worship of men and of angels for eternity. You know, a little bit later, at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22 and verses 8 and 9, at one point John is going to be so overawed by the vision that he has seen from this angel that he is actually going to, um, we read uh, Revelation 22, 8, that he immediately falls down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed these things to him. And there we see the clearest reference ever in Scripture of angelic horror. That angel immediately says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. You see, the angels are especially sensitive to this fact that nothing in all creation should ever receive worship but the living God alone. And here in the book of Revelation, in this picture of heavenly worship, We see worship being given to the Lamb. And friends, this worship is not only allowed and permitted by the angels, but they're the ones who, as it were, are leading us in this worship. They are saying this Lamb is worthy of all of the worship that you could ever bring. Do you see the words that they pile up in the songs that they sing? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, all of creation says to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is what we do when we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saying to Him, Lord, I am nothing. All the things that this world says are so vitally important, our achievements, our wealth, our fame, our popularity, our pursuit of happiness and pleasure, our success, all of the things that the world says are worth giving your life to. Lord Jesus, I know in comparison to you, these things are as nothing. In the words of Paul, he accounts all of these things to be dung, but for the surpassing excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it is nothing compared to the glory and majesty of His name. And friends, that is at the very heart of what true worship is. It is to ascribe to the Lord Jesus all glory and majesty. I simply ask, is that the primary aim of your life? Say, Lord, at the end of my life, might this one thing be true, that I have given all praise to you. Now and then forevermore, Might it be that my life has been lived to make much of your name. That all glory, honor, majesty would be ascribed unto you to whom it is due. You see, that is what those early Christians who lived in Bithynia and Pontus knew. They grasped that. Certainly emboldened by John's vision and revelation, They said, we want to join this company of those who are worshiping the Lamb. And we will pay any price to do it. We will be despised and downtrodden. We will be misunderstood. But we are going to gather on that first day of the week and sing sing hymns to Christ as to God. 
might we still be found in their train, giving all honor and glory to him. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened and emboldened by this vision of heavenly worship. And Lord, we ask that you would now receive the worship of your people here on earth as we join the worship that is given in heaven, and might it glorify you. O Lord Jesus, how can we praise you enough for all that you have done for our souls? O Lord, receive all the worship that we can bring, and bless us also as we come to the table.